Well, thank you for bringing me here. Isn't this beautiful? It's nice, isn't it? I so, might yeah. just merge into the base of these twin trees. Your hair is sort of <laughs> falling into the moss I, behind you. I can feel myself sinking in. You'd <laughs> love to scoop me out. <laughs> well, there's a question. Should we start there? Would you like your body when you pass to sink into nature and into the environment? Yes, I love that you started at the end. I just mentioned this to my mum, actually. I said, well, I'm not going to have a grave. I'm just going to be composted. Did you I, look into how you would be composted? Well, there have been a lot of companies that started sprouting up. I think in the States. I haven't read up about any in Ireland, which I should do, because I definitely feel, and I don't want to sound patriotic or crazy Irish, but I've always felt like that's where I should be and the stardust that's, that makes me up should settle sure. on that piece of rock in the ocean. <laughs> but definitely composting and that's something that all, you know, when I talk about my work I, with students, I would start with an image of the compost. That's one of the first images I show is the compost pile, which is beautiful. All uh -huh. those colored, the fruits and vegetables. And uh, I'm like, this is my weekly compost or daily compost. And that's just a part of, of my life and my work because uh -huh. it's all combined. The life and work is all one thing. Hello and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think the natural world is incredible. For those of you at ease in Lees or with a breeze through trees, I get to talk to people who are dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. For this, the final episode of 2023, I finally found an opportunity to talk with a visual artist and environmental activist that I'd been hunting down since seeing an exhibition of hers in Ireland back in 2020. The exhibition in question was on the Irish tree alphabet, both the early medieval writing system we know as the Om, and a pictorial representation of our modern alphabet that this artist had designed, each of our 26 letters being replaced by a picture of one of 26 native Irish tree species. Covid, and sadly as you'll hear, long Covid, may have kept us from meeting back in 2020 and in 2021, and in 2022, but time was not wasted, for it provided the opportunity for this artist to turn her tree alphabet into a brilliant and now internationally best-selling book, The Language of Trees. So, from a mossy moot in the dappled shade of a wild service tree, deep in a Dorsetshire woodland called Duncliffe, one owned and protected by a wonderful woodland trust, this is Trees A Crowd, and this, finally is Katie Holton. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. What was it about your particular upbringing with your particular parents that brought nature into your world or was it them that did it or was it later? Well, definitely my mum. So my mum's a gardener and a floral artist. She's you know been the chairperson of IFA, which is the Association of Irish Floral Artists and as I'm a visual artist we even had this conversation with well should they be associated with the visual with the Arts Council in Ireland because they consider them what they do art 
and then the visual art world is very condescending and definitely no that's working with flowers that has nothing to do with you know fine art that's more craft and this has been an ongoing <laughs> conversation for a long time but so I grew up outside in the garden with my mum weeding hands in the dirt and I was the eldest so I was the first sure. child let run wild which sadly it doesn't happen with most kids now right everything's kind of shifted there's an um, attempted very middle class attempt to try and move backwards to forest schools and that mm, kind of that's thing. That's true, yes. But it's obviously in the way that is now being marketed quite an expensive way to educate your children, which is perverse considering it's just off your pop. Yes. What is the difference between floral art and floristry? And if I asked that question, <laughs> would your mother hit me? <laughs> Recently there was the Bloom Festival in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So it's about celebrating blooms and gardens and the gardening showcases and there's a tent for IFA, the Association of Irish Floral Artists and they have competitions. You create a, a sculptural installation but with plants. plants Living plants or dead plants? It's mostly cut okay. but they're trying to get away like for example it's this is a big shift huge seismic shift almost um, when I was just home with my mum she had an arrangement but there was no oasis and oasis is this green it's like a fake moss in a way. oh it's yeah a i know they're sort of you can cut it into chunks exactly. and stuff and, and you fill it you let it soak in water church so that floral it's carpets are full of the stuff yes but now they're they've realized oh because it doesn't we used to put it in the compost heap and then we realized oh wait a minute it doesn't compost so it's the way barry's tea bags we all thought they compost and then realized <laughs> oh wait a minute there's actually plastic. plastic so there was a huge campaign and now barry's has no plastic in their it's okay this to drink episode tea. is brought to you by Barry's <laughs> Tea. And um, so the floral art is a way to, um, to work with plants and share them indoors. Usually these arrangements happen inside. Uh -huh. So it's a very simple way to bring the environment home. There is the sad reality that most of the time they're used for wreaths on graves sure. or for um, funerals in churches um, but there's also the celebratory my mum works in a hotel and does all the weddings and so having plants right it's everybody wants if you're having a celebration mm -hmm. whether it's for life or death there's an, a sense that there needs there should be flowers you have to mark it with something natural otherwise it has no relevance yeah it's not a special occasion yeah we had a family wedding last weekend and uh, my cousin-in-law, cousin now, is a flower ranger florist, oh. um, green-fingered, wonderful thing. And yeah, again, it's, it's a wedding, so we need flowers. And it was, it was done outside in a garden, and it's the perfect setting for a jointure of people, because <laughs> why wouldn't it be? And even when you go into a church, yeah, it's not, I haven't quite, I haven't thought about it really in those terms in quite the same way. Have you ever dabbled with floral artistry well, in a non-birth wedding or death setting <laughs> well, doing it at home the house was always full sure of because mum was a great is a great gardener and her mother was a great gardener so we were always outside gardening and then the the cutting from the that's one reason you would have the plants in the garden is that you, they're good for cuttings mm -hmm. and then you bring them inside so the house was full we would have rooms that are just dedicated to the classroom because mum teaches and the arrangements so it was almost not like a factory but very you know she always worked kind of non-stop and the plant materials and the buckets with the water and the different plants and then cut flowers which are imported so it's a huge mm -hmm. footprint right this is a big issue more and more I think um, locally in Ireland there are flower farmers sure. starting up so that's a good thing have you ever been to the um, um, Dutch 
a flower market. I've never been. You can see them on Google Earth. The amount of space that they cover is quite astounding. Scary. Yeah. But you were, you were asking me if I ever dabbled. Hmm. So when we were little, we did try and help because it was like a factory operation and mum had such demand. So we would try and help. And I think because there was this distinction that it wasn't real art, I somehow had, not that I shut myself off, but I was more interested in... Real art. Well, not real art, because I didn't know what real art was. We were Does anybody know what real art is? <laughs> when you go to New York, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we grew up in rural Ireland, so we didn't get to go to museums or galleries. That all happened when I was much older. Uh-huh. But there was a sense that the first works that I made when I was still a student, I went to Na- NCID, the National College of Art and Design in Dublin, and they didn't really understand what I was doing because I was weeding. I would go for walks uh-huh. and I would weed and collect weeds and maybe bring them indoors or bring them to other places. And people weren't working with plants. You know, I was trying to figure out what I was interested in and what I was doing, kind of making it up as I went along. Uh-huh. And um, Were you at that time when you were collecting weeds and bits of plant matter aware that you were sort of following in your mother's footsteps or inspired oh, by yeah I've, you knew that um, it took decades decades that makes me sound really old it took years to realize that everything I do is goes it starts from when I was this little little eight-year-old outside under the trees like we're exactly where we are now and um, the work that my mum does and the work that my dad does my dad was an accountant and worked with numbers a mathematician uh-huh. and as I was the eldest there was I think he had a lot of hope that I would pick up on the numbers because he was really bright mm-hmm. and unfortunately my brain's wired very differently but I loved I def- definitely fell in love with the trying to understand the world through like figuring out how things are connected to everything else sure and mathematics numbers um, is just another language it's a man-made yeah. system for understanding the world and how it works and I wanted to be a physicist actually Oh, okay. Um, I was really inspired by Jim Glick's book on Richard Feynman and chaos. And so all, all of this works with it. Lots of illustrative mathematics and all of that, if yes, I'm right in saying. Yes, where you can kind of visualise like the self, uh, not replicating, but um, self-similar systems sure. and chaotic. The fact that everything starts as very simple. You've got zeros and ones. should be quite logical and self-evident. And then very quickly you end up with something very chaotic kind of how you know a woodland would be mm-hmm. it just finds a way life finds a way and that happens with these mathematical systems and computer programs and viruses so there's that and then what my mum does working with this cycle of life and the planting and the germinating of seeds and the harvesting and the composting so those two cycles have influenced and are really deeply embedded in everything that I've probably ever done and did you work that out whilst you're at art school it was probably afterwards. Uh-huh. I didn't realise until I had to start sharing my work. Uh, now we use PowerPoints, but back then it was with slides. Uh-huh. <laughs> it feels like a dinosaur equipment. So I would give a slideshow to students. And I started realising I needed to go all the way back to my mum's garden and working with a piece of paper and a pencil with my dad with the numbers. So what were your sort of graduating pieces? What Had you worked out what kind of stylistic stuff you were doing at that stage? Well, I was working with plants and I was having an office space. I had set up a little institute, the Tup Institute. Mm-hmm. So it was research. My work's always been research-based. And I feel that's why I felt a great affinity, I think, with the physicists and the scientists. Because my work was always about asking questions, not being afraid to be silly and ask a stupid question. And 
reaching out to other disciplines. And I think this has only become more and more important, the breaking down of disciplines. disciplinary borders. Yes, exactly. And the environmental humanities that are popping up now, I think the work that I did to, in my graduation show uh, was um, involved concrete drawings. So I just had a pencil, was drawing on the walls of, it was the RHA, the actual academy in Dublin. Uh-huh. And it was down in the basement where the sump pump was. So immediately I took everybody, the, all the visitors had to leave the white walls of the gallery where the real art was and find their way down into the basement of the space to explore the concrete drawings which was playing with concrete poetry and and language and and what is art anyway and then upstairs in the gallery I had my institute which was the desk filing cabinets and drawings and booklets and trying to have material that I could share and give away I've always been wanting to share and, and books and pamphlets and zines were a really easy way to disseminate the, the research work and the drawings and the knowledge. It's about gathering knowledge and sharing it. This sounds very similar to what you did at the Venice yeah. Biennale. Exactly, um, very similar work. I think I read that you were giving out pamphlets that you had got photocopied from all of the different sort of photocopy shops around where you were in the wow, city. Wow, you've been reading up. Well, I tried that to. feels like, you know, that was exactly 20 years ago. Congratulations. <laughs> who's, who's counting? Um, <laughs> Yeah. Am I also right in saying that you revisited it after 10 years? Yeah. yeah. Are you not tempted to revisit it after 20 years I to am, see if there's a legacy? It w- would have been this year, 2023, but for COVID knocked uh, Venice off a year. So uh-huh. it's going to be next year, 2024, and I am going to, I feel compelled. I've got to go and revisit it 20 years later. Yeah. You've set yourself a sort of a decade pilgrimage. But it's it's funny because time I think is part it was such a part of the work at the time, uh-huh. but I hadn't really really appreciated because I was dealing with so many you know I made about a series of thirteen or fourteen booklets sure. for that project in Venice, which were all available for free. I created a library, and it was only afterwards I realised oh, the conver- you know I was going for weed walks, meeting a lot of researchers, people studying the lagoon ecosystem in Venice. Mm-hmm that one of the weed walks, Gabriella Buffa, who was the botanist for the city, was pointing at weeds that were new to Venice. And they had moved during her time while she was there because the climate was shifting and plants were moving north. And I I remember vividly, we were walking over a bridge the way you do in Venice, um, Mm -hmm. over a little canal. And I thought, oh, oh, interesting. That seed was planted. I'm going to have to come back in 10 years time. And I sort of put that aside because I was frantic trying to make the work for the opening and the hoo-ha around the Biennale it's very crazy and it was only afterwards I realized oh I will have to come back in 10 years because time is such an important part of all of this and so revisit those weed walks so that's what I did. We've already hit on a number of themes including time as you say humanity slash anthropology but also the natural world do you in any way shape or form see them as separate entities or is the biodiversity of existence all interrelated in your mind yeah I think everything is connected that goes back to my trying to work with the numbers to understand and to communicate how things are connected and then the interspecies so this gets to maybe why I would have made a tree alphabet for example is to think beyond the human centric way of thinking about everything because we are just another animal on the planet and we are so entangled with all of the other animals but there seems to have um, this huge disconnect has kind of been created probably 
forced upon us by the powers that be way back in the day when they had their it all comes back to economics mm -hmm. i think they were trying to rope everybody in to work for them so that they could have their factories producing their objects so that they could make their money and it would spin mm -hmm. so humans were more of cogs in the wheel and we were not supposed to think of ourselves as individuals who could have leisure time and do what we're doing now sitting down under trees because we were just supposed to create the goods that could be shipped so that these people could make, make money. their money yeah and maybe that's been very skeptical but i think this the disconnect has to was created it's not that oh somehow we have become disconnected from what's around us and maybe being irish there's a sense that it was imposed on us because we were forced not to speak our language and you you see that obviously with indigenous communities in America where yeah. they're now trying to reclaim their land and their languages and fighting to save them. And that it was because they were forced not to, they were physically removed from their families and told you can't speak that language. And they would have to hide in Ireland. We had secret hedge schools, for example, which is now, you know, in, we're talking about forest schools mm -hmm. and tree schools, but this was a matter of survival. These are schools where Irish speakers would hide in the hedges, would hide in the hedges to, to continue the language yes. of going despite the English trying to beat it. I had a very interesting experience going to see a production of Friel's translations at the Abbey uh -huh. a couple of years ago now and I took with me two Danes, a Swede and a Finn. <laughs> this sounds like a joke. <laughs> Doesn't it just? And it was a fascinating discussion afterwards. The, the Finn couldn't work out when anyone was speaking in English or Gaelic. The Swede was just talking about how the fight between the British and the Irish was very much like a different part of Swedish history. And the Danes just were in heaven, just bathing in cultural wonderhood. But it was just, I spent most of my time knowing the play quite well, just watching the reactions of the people I was there with mm. and looking at the sort of common threads through humanity. Mm. But yeah, there is that thing about it being a hedge school. Do you, t do you sort of, do you think that's just coincidence that you have those terms of, of human words describing it as a hedge school. No. Because um, it's beautiful There's no phrase. such thing as coincidence. Okay. <laughs> you know, people have asked me where, where my favourite tree is. That's a question I've been asked a lot recently. And I go back to that time when I was this little eight-year-old girl running wild out of the house all day, every day. And I was, it was just like this, almost a mossy bed looking up at a tree and the sun was shining in like this right it's heaven it's perfect mm -hmm. and that was in the hedge it was the edge of the field between the field and the laneway and that hedge ditch area was my heaven and that mm -hmm. was the safe secret happy place that i go back to all the time do you know what species they were uh, no <laughs> i don't know any of the and it was it's all gone now because you know a road a motorway because. was built I, it's like that, I, I love a hedge <laughs> and I love a hedge because most people pretend it's not trees but it's just it's just plants in a different form it mm. can be hazel and oaks and limes and lots of elms are the only elms we've got left these days are, uh -huh. in, are in hedgerows and uh, now the hedge lane is coming back this uh, learning how to to lay a hedge and to mm -hmm. mark the trees get them to grow so you've got a living hedge the, all these traditions that we sort of yeah. kind of laughed and sniggered out and said, oh, that's very old. Yeah, no, coppicing, pollarding, everything's mm -hmm. coming back. Yeah. There's a wonderful um, ash stool in this forest where we are, in Duncliffe Woods, Woodland Trust, go see it. It's massive. I think it's got a diameter of 
I don't know, 10 meters, but it's got wow. basically four huge trunks going out of it since it stopped being harvested for wood. Oh. It's quite beautiful. If we had time, I'd take you there. We've mentioned the tree alphabet, so we should probably talk about that. The thing that I am aware of increasingly is that there's not a tree alphabet. Mm. You've made numerous tree alphabets, mm -hmm. which are different trees depending upon. So, that my, so the, the first tree alphabet of yours that I came across was the one that you created for the uh, exhibition uh, visual in Carlo which was Irish trees. It was yeah. 26 Irish trees. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's beautiful. It links to the Om or Ogham, if you, however you want to pronounce it. And all of the sort of Irish roots, Celtic roots all going through it. And I didn't realize that there was an American version of the alphabet beforehand. And then your new book's out now and has a whole load of American trees in it. And I think hmm. obviously native tree species vary where you are in the world. I'm like, how many more of these alphabets are you going to have to make <laughs> before you've made the the appropriate 26 and and also there are loads of alphabets that have more than 26 characters in them yes so have you made a rod for your own back in creating tree <laughs> alphabets um, and, and let's actually first question what are your tree alphabets what is the tree alphabet <laughs> well you know being irish i grew up knowing about the the ohm i pronounce it ohm which sounds like ohm the some say the original the first sound the oldest sound of the universe mm -hmm. is that a coincidence that you don't believe in coincidences. No, so Ohm was our medieval Irish tree alphabet. We weren't taught it at school, I, at least I wasn't. Mm -hmm. But we knew it was very much just a, taken for granted. Uh, Ireland had a tree alphabet. And it's called a tree alphabet because we think, we can't know for sure because it's medieval, it's from the mm -hmm. 5th century. We can't know for sure, but the, there were around 20 characters at the time and some of them were named after trees this is what we think it's all and also pictorially speaking it's got a central trunk and then exactly. branches called faders that come off yes, it yes fader and nin and i'm not a native irish speaker but they are the words for um branch and forking branch there you go. but we don't know if that came afterwards i was just speaking with mancon magan who um, is an irish speaker and knows a lot about all of this and he's like yes we can't quite know for sure mm -hmm. but our best guess is that maybe those words in the tree alphabet were imposed afterwards but what I do know from looking at it and I've included images of the ohm in in the book that it, it was written and read from the ground up mm -hmm. so the way a tree or a plant grows and literally from the ground up because it remains on standing stones that are scattered around Ireland and they're also in Wales in the east coast of mm -hmm the UK and they scratched from the ground up letter by letter with the as you said a main trunk and then with the little branches tweaking out and then you knew you could read decipher which letter it was and then the letters were written on top of each other yeah. growing up the way a, tr a tree or a plant grows so when I realized that it was literally that you know that moment where everything clicks together and I realized oh the tree alphabet was actually it was a human way of communicating the way trees and plants do so it was like humans were mirroring how how an organic system grows sure. and that just makes so much sense to me you have turned your tree alphabet into a digital font do you see that as a natural progression of a human expression of nature and language does it upset you that it's electronic <laughs> would you rather that you were taking it back to the ground rather than sending it off into the airways. It felt inevitable that I had to have a font. Um, uh -huh. 
you know, to typeface, but I needed the, the font so that we could make a book. And in order to make the book, I needed to be able to have the designers translate everything into the trees, my tree drawings. And so, yeah, it was just from the very first moment I had the this crazy notion to make a tree alphabet, I realized I had to make a font. And, you know, I've always had this love-hate relationship with digital. Mm-hmm. I'm not very tech. You like slides, not PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> I go near, I actually have this weird electrical chemical force field that causes things to malfunction. People think I'm crazy, but um, it's true. Well, the microphone's still working for now. For now, yeah. <laughs> so the, the edition that I've got in front of me is the English edition of the book. The Language of Trees, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't, I don't call it English. I say Irish and UK. Okay, Irish and UK version of trees. So why is the font of trees that you have used in this including American tree species? So I made this font actually way back in 2015 mm-hmm. to make a book called About Trees. And that was, it was a celebration of my 40th birthday. I didn't tell anybody at the time. Uh, nobody knew. It was my own little secret. And I had the idea in January. And so I knew the book needed to be printed in September when my birthday is in September. <laughs> and so we, we made the whole thing in six months. And the we was, you know, my brother John is a writer and has a publishing house in Berlin called Broken Dimanche Press. We'd wanted to make a book together for years, but I had too many book ideas. You wanted a family tree. <laughs> yeah, it's too many book ideas. And so the tree alphabet idea, this notion came to me in a flash in the middle of the night. And I immediately knew this is it. This is the book. I was slightly nervous that it was too twee. You know, work, working with trees is, um, you know, I was worried, oh, it's too tree huggery. Mm-hmm. And I messaged my brother, I wrote it out. Are you still worried about that? Uh, no, I messaged John, it was like two o'clock in the morning, and he was in Berlin, so he got it that mo- the next morning. He replied immediately and said, brilliant, beautiful, don't worry at all. Because I, I trust him, he would have said, yeah, you're right, it's too gimmicky. Mm-hmm. And so because I trusted him, we said it was full steam ahead. Literally, if you, this wants to come out in September, we need to make the tree alphabet right now today. I need to get a designer. And by the end of the week, we have to have the font. Because ha- the designers couldn't make the book. And I had to start collecting sure. all of the texts and everything. So it was really an emergency situation to make it so quickly. But I realized afterwards, so your question about was I, am I still worried? I realized afterwards that Ursula K. Le Guin spoke about this sentimentality of um, if you talk about trees or nature, maybe people think it's not really art. And maybe this is related to the floral art question. Uh If you're talking about these soft, flowery nature issues, it's sentimental rather than being serious and legitimate and real, real literature or art, fine art. And she said, that's a load of baloney. That's obviously not what Ursula K. Le Guin <laughs> said. But um, I realized that was the fear I had, was that it would be s- seen sure. as sentimental. And I've only come to realize more and more and more how necessary it is. There was a huge, as soon as we mentioned the book, people heard about it. They went nuts. You could just see people opening up. It was like hearts and minds just cracked open and people fell in love with it. I wanted the book we realized we hadn't printed enough. It was the same with this edition, actually. Sure. They had to reprint it before we had the launch. <laughs> so just to confirm, that book back in the day, that was 
pieces of writing by other people that you had collected yeah. and then presented like with the new book both in your tree font and in a normal right. font yeah. was it also in green ink as your current book yes is? and it was on beautiful monk and paper so how does the old book differ to the new book um, well the new book is at the heart of it is that book which was called about trees mm-hmm. and it uses the same tree alphabet and a lot of the same material i think almost everything that was in about trees is here but i got to include a lot more (laughs) and new stuff that's been written since as well and yes so so it it includes old existing lost forgotten work by some dead people some living people and then new work that was commissioned especially for example angus woods writes about ohm because i felt it was really necessary to have something about ohm and it's a compilation of and a compendium i think of things that i feel are necessary to share that's what I, I felt like it was a you know i love books i've always loved books and i feel like they're these beautiful time capsules and objects and a way to share things that i've enjoyed found important and because i tend to read uh-huh. widely and wildly <laughs> i can maybe have access to a lot of information or knowledge that maybe your average reader wouldn't necessarily have uh-huh. and so I can bring as I mentioned you know breaking down disciplines I can bring in somebody from the Santa Fe Institute for example yeah. who's talking about the mathematics of tree branching along with poetry and visual artists and music music it's multidisciplinary presentation and practice it's a wonderful mix of people um whether Tasta Dean or Radiohead or Ursula Le Guin anybody mentioned Robin Wall Kimmerer it's it's quite fantastic my favorite piece for me was reading the Tastadine extract. Oh, lovely. Because I've loved Siebold for so long. She talks about W.G. Siebold and who he was pretending to be in his books yeah. and finding out about a whole new route of, of what I've loved but I didn't realise was there. Mm. And I think that's kind of the lovely thing about it is, as well as being a compendium and bringing everything together, it's the starting point of extra sort of epicormic shoots they are going to stretch out for people in different ways they don't really know about yet. Mm, yes, hopefully. I'm so glad that that went worked for you that was that's really what it's all about well it's about lots of different things but that's a huge do you important part of it do you think that you the alphabet that you made back in 2014 2015 is still the right collection of species well so that's what happened when we um had this book about trees printed as soon as i held it in my hand i realized oh we could have a planting palette specific to a location like to a a real place Mm. And that's what they call it in the New York City Parks Department. They call it a planting palette, the okay. trees that they can work with. And they used to be native trees. Now, because climate, the climate emergency is like full swing ahead and the climate is shifting so rapidly, literally in front of our eyes, they are opening it up to non-natives. And this is hugely problematic because a lot of the general public freak out. If they hear trees that are not natives yeah. being planted, they, they get really angry and aggressive so it's something that the parks department can't really talk about so they were excited to work with me on a new york city tree alphabet because it's a way to deal with these political hot button topics in a very accessible family friendly fun way because you're talking about the alphabet and trees and And you can squeeze in a few archaeophytes and non-natives and make it make ownership of it right and so you can talk about these deeply political and very dark subject matters like the climate emergency and all of this not in an underhand or um, way but in a way that if you're interested in discussing or learning more it's there and if you just want to try and learn how to identify your trees you can just do that too we'll get on to extinction rebellion in a second probably but are you aware of future forests 
Oh, that rings a bell. There was a, a sylvologist, he calls himself, which I still think is wonderful, called Gabriel Hemery, who was talking to me about future forests, which is creating forests that will be suitable for climates yet to come. Ah, yeah. So deliberately planting forests in the UK that have predominantly Spanish and Portuguese mm -hmm. variants of oaks and beeches, etc. Which I think is a really compelling forward-faced reaction to mm -hmm. the impending climate disaster. In one sense, it might not be doing enough to try and avert it, but it is certainly doing something that could help assuage any biodiversical collapse that we might be faced with sooner rather than later. Yeah, this is happening in so many different ways, right, with vineyards. So my sister lives in Dorchester and they've got Langham. I don't mean to do product placement. No, no, but <laughs> we've got Barry's tea already. Let's see where else we go. <laughs> Beautiful um, sparkling wine and the vineyards down there. And there's talk of it happening in Ireland now because, the, you know, you can grow vines. Well, the west coast Moving. of Ireland has always had an amazing climate for odd, like the, the number of botanical gardens that you get down the coast of Wicklow is kind of ridiculous considering... The east coast, yeah. The, yeah, the east coast, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, around Wexford, really exactly. um, like a microclimate. But it is, um, the future forest is part of the climate adaptation. And uh -huh. in the book, Chelsea Steiner Scudder talks about the, the movement, the tree migration, mm -hmm. and the fact that forests do move, but just in tree time. So as humans are we look at time in such a speeded up fast way everything's happening now 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 not happening quickly enough for us so we don't tend to see how trees and forests are moving sure. but they obviously do and now the fact that humans are having to help it's like most things it's really difficult because it's not happening fast enough and we're seeing the wildfires that yeah. are well, is there a perverse reality now that we're faced with whereby we have made the environment take on a human pace. We watch temperatures rise. You've got the unprecedented temperature in the seawater mm. around Ireland and the UK at the moment, oh, yeah. which is terrifying. Mm. But that we talk about nature and, and slow time and tree time, but at the moment, climate time is kind of human time. Yeah, that's very true. And I don't think I've heard, I haven't had that conversation with, with anyone yet about the fact that because I keep saying we need to, I need to think more in tree time. But I think you're the first person who said to me, well, the <laughs> tree time is actually having to speed up. Yeah. Not having to, is we've pushed it to such a, an extreme that now it's uh, fast forwarding. Uh, it's very... Um, Are you scared? Um, well, it's, it's more... I don't, angry is not the word really sad, like profoundly sad that we are so selfish that our species is so incredibly stupid and stupid's the wrong word because as i mentioned before it's a few people comes back to economics and money and that have caused this and have known like the companies that knew the climate scientists told them a long time ago that this was going to happen mm -hmm. um, if you burn fossil fuels it's going to affect the climate and we're going to end up with where we are now teetering on the brink of extinction so angry sad all these emotions and this is part of the climate grief is dealing with these difficult emotions and then you know i had a conversation with roy squanton at our climate our sunday salons where we we talked about the fact that our species is already dead and we need to acknowledge the fact that we're already it's already probably too late and maybe some people say that's too bleak but it's very realistic <laughs> Because if you think on a long 
time scale. And, you know, I, I was just listening to Brian Cox speaking at the Jockey Festival a few days ago, and um, he was asked about extinction and being a good ancestor, and he said, well, you know, extinction is inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's just... You don't want to happen on your watch, necessarily. <laughs> yeah, so the, the emotions are very strong and visceral, and that's why I'm like a walking billboard. I have... You know, extinction all rebellion on your phone. <laughs> the so I see you've got it in your hair as well. <laughs> you got it. I don't know what you could have shaved into your brow line. Oh, can you still see it? I saw it on Twitter the other day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I had it carved in for the the book tour. I had the extinction symbol carved into my head because I feel like we need to be. Um, we're in an emergency. And we need to be out in the streets screaming, which I if do. If we're already <laughs> dead, though, why do we need to scream? Because it's it's not too late. This is the big message. So we're not already dead. No, and I think so. You know, some people have problems with Roy and the that stance uh-huh. going that far, that extreme. But for the, in the context of our conversations, I think it was really important that we started off in a dark place because it's really urgent, uh-huh. and there is still time. It's not too late. Rebecca Solnit's her book came out the same day my book came out in the states. Uh-huh. Hers is called "It's Not Too Late." We need to spread this message really quickly, and hope. You know, we need to be active. You can't just... This is the problematics with hope. If you're hopeful, then you just lie back and you recline. You're like, oh, it's all going to be okay. I'm hopeful. I think I'm more optimistic. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do something about it mm-hmm. and I'm going to get others to do something about it. And together, Paddy Smith's song, you know, People Power, <laughs> there's something to it. So we are stronger when we get together, right? <laughs> So what are you going to do next? What are you looking at at the moment? You've obviously, obviously got the book out that's doing its thing, but what are you going to do once that is its own baby out in the world? Oh, uh, well, I'm dealing with um, trying to fix my broken body. I have to retrain my body. Has to, needs to remember how to breathe. This sounds ridiculous, but I have a form of long COVID called dysautonomia. So my autonomic nervous system is dysfunctioning. It's broken. It's forgotten how to do all the auto- automatic mm-hmm. things like breathing and heart rate and brain function. And so I'm working with doctors in Mount Sinai in New York who are trying to help me with the rehab. So actually lying down in this position, lying down, is one of the only things that helps. And doing my breathing exercises. So that's very practical. Do you Next think term plan to try and fix to plan how to breathe. Do you think there's something poetic or do you think there's something semi-intentional about a woman who's writing about trees that breathe out oxygen, whereas we breathe in oxygen and you as the person who's giving voice to trees and people who equally love trees cannot breathe? Uh, well, that's only the tip of the iceberg because um, the CAT scan shows... Because I had tachycardia, so my heart rate... I usually have a slow heart rate, but it was going you know, 160, uh-huh. and I was doing nothing, just sitting in a chair. That's why I needed a CAT scan, and that shows that I have trees in bud. Okay. I, believe it or not, that's a medical term. That's a real, actual medical term. What is it? It means, you know how the trees are this universal, this branching system appears everywhere in nature? Yeah. River deltas and in our lungs. Yeah, so bronchiole, alveoli, Exactly, cetera, all of those little tips in my lungs are all have nodules. So this is the word that they use, nodules. So rather than just being clear branching, there are little buds, little nodules. Um, and it sounds beautiful. <laughs> I love that I have trees in bud, but it's not technically a good thing. Uh-huh. So we, I had a second CAT scan and they're still there. So we, we just have to keep an eye on it. We're not sure. It could be one of many, many different things. 
Has it made you slow down and spend more time with nature? Well, I have to slow down. Or just down. more time in hospitals? <laughs> I've spent so much time in hospitals. All I was doing was dealing with the book, and then if I wasn't dealing with the book, I was in a waiting to see a doctor. Uh, it took 10 months to get the diagnosis to uh-huh. dysautonomia because regular doctors don't see it. And one reason I like to mention it when I'm touring and speaking about my work is, and use the word dysautonomia, is it's not known about it. It's, um, somehow it's invisible. Mm-hmm. But I think there are millions of people, tens of millions of long COVID sufferers out there. And I think there are people who are like me, who know there's something wrong with their body, but they, the doctors tell them they're fine. The regular tests don't show it up. And I had never heard of the word dysautonomia, so now I'm, I'm repeating it. it. Out of the <laughs> Do you think we, have, as a human race, have forgotten how to live with nature in the same way that you've forgotten how to breathe? Yes. And do you think and society I, should stop reinforcing that belief that we've forgotten how to exist? Well, there's so much about what I have with long COVID that is um, a reinforcement of what I've been trying to do. I wanted to make a tree alphabet in order to slow down as a way and try to help me personally slow down and other people slow down. Everything was moving too quickly. Then COVID came and literally stopped everything and slowed us down. But now we've sped up and we're going even faster than we were before. So what's happened to my own body is that I am forced, I can't get enough oxygen, so I'm left breathless. I can't move. Like I literally, there are days when I am barely able to walk. And the, that can't be just a coincidence. It is like what I am going through is um, mirroring what's happening. Maybe there's another book. Maybe I need to sit down. Maybe this should be my next project, trying to write about it. Yeah, so I have said this to others. You know, Mark O'Connell, his book just came out the other day, and I said, we didn't get to meet yet in person, but I said, Mark, if only I was a real writer like you and I could articulate what's going on That's with one me. <laughs> one of the things I was going to ask is, shouldn't there be more of your words in this book rather than just using other people's? Well, I've always always wanted to write when I was little I thought maybe I should go to and study English and literature but I've always been a collector and gather together other voices so that's part of what I've always done like collaging and sharing that way and maybe I'm hiding behind the alphabet too having an alphabet to translate means that I don't need to articulate myself I can lead others down the path where they can maybe make the connections and read something whereas I don't have to spell it out because I've I've always found with my work I don't like to say this is what it is Mm -hmm. and I for example for years I never said my work was political even though it deeply was but I didn't want to let the viewer um, have my imposition put on it and I think that's related to if you write something then you're putting it down in black and white Okay, take us away from forest for a bit. Tell me about Ardybog. So I grew up um, in rural Longford, which is right in the heart of Ireland. And that's where that hedge was that I was telling you about, mm-hmm. my special place. But when I was 10, we moved to Ardy. Our house was on the edge of Ardybog, and my mum still lives there. That's still our home. And it was where I went, made my first artworks. So my dad, I think it was my dad who found the bog, actually, when we moved there. So we all went to visit and have those beautiful early memories of day summer days like this exploring the edge because at the edge of the bog you have like birch woods pop up and wood like small little native woodlands and it was it's such a like anybody who's been on a bog knows how it's like time really does slow down sure. and everything becomes quiet a very special place so it always felt kind of magical visiting so i would just go i would spend i'd walk down walk the bog road and slip into the bog 
As in swim or just uh, No, slip or? in through the, because you have the little bog road. Yeah. Which would go back to the old routes, like the old trails before we had tarmac sure. um, in the olden days. So the bog road is sinking and actually people have died with the cars fly off the road because it's all sinking and you shouldn't have a, bo- a road there. So I would just slip through the little birch trees and collapse into the heather <laughs> and lie there kind of sunken, listening and just being quiet. Because it's very hard to find quiet spaces outside. And I don't know if I have some form of autism, but I've always been very, very disturbed by sound uh-huh. and noise. And finding a quiet place is very important. And being there. And then once you're down at ground level, you start to look around and you see things. And then you see there are creatures there and little plants, like the sundews. Mm-hmm. Things I'd never, like we have carnivorous plants. Who we knew do. in Ireland? <laughs> And they're also really colourful. And mm-hmm. everybody has always, you know, they still talk about how bogs are brown and boring and dismal. All very negative connotations. But the reality is if you look up close, like if you look closely at anything, you'll yeah. see how beautiful it is. And so I started taking photographs. And those were just technically the first artworks that I made. And I call this whole series Bog Awareness. So there we go to the this political the trying to raise awareness for this beautiful Bob. place that was right on our doorstep that many 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 people live in rd and have no idea there's a bog let me ask you a question that i've been thinking about asking everybody for a while what is the most wild encounter you've ever had oh well i don't know if this is wild but my partner dylan and i were um over in the west because we try and go there when we can searching for our a ruin that we can rewild and a quiet space to be and we went in search of the tetrapod footprints the tetrapods were the first the first life forms to walk on earth i think and that's where the footprints that exist now and they're hundreds of millions of years old are right on the edge of the water so it's literally like you can picture this animal having crawled out of the water and walked on earth and they're they're still there they survived and there's a little car park and tourists come people come from all over the world to look at these footprints and that was wild in many different senses of the world that you're in the middle of nowhere in the west of Ireland and you're time traveling you you can feel this presence of a creature who and you know the little diagram that they have on the interpretive sign to explain what the tetrapod is mm-hmm. shows this little like a little blob <laughs> Little fishy thing, kind of. Yeah, kind yeah. of like the... Ex- the axolotl. Axolotl. And that's where it all started. So when we were there, there were people from all over the planet, humans from all over the planet, mm. and there were adults with children, young children, and trying to explain, oh, you know, before there were humans, there were these little creatures with feet and they're their footprints. So it's a, you know, very emotional, very abstract, because you had to use your imagination. Yeah and time travel and then I always find that these going back in time makes you think about the future so you're propelling yourself into the future when there are no humans and will our footprints survive and what will the next life forms be and so you have this beautiful circular back to tree time where where do we fit into all of this because we've just been here for such a tiny teeny blip those footprints right this is wild. There are hundreds of millions of years old. We've only been here. You know, on, in Ireland, it was just 10,000 years ago when the yeah. glaciers retreated. And that's when the trees appeared. 
and then the humans came Water to start cost. farming. 10,000 years, that's nothing. Perfect. Um, you need to go away and read um, Dougal Dixon's After Man, which Dougal is all about Dixon. the animals that comes next. Katie, <gasps> thank you very much indeed. We will end it there. <laughs> thank you. A massive thank you to Katie for the hours we spent in Duncliffe last summer. If you would like to know more about Katie and her work, head to our website, treesacrowd.fm, where you can find details of all that we covered in this episode, as well as further reading. But given the season, perhaps the best thing to do would be to add her glorious green and gold book about our arboreal friends to your Christmas present wish list. It will brighten your roasting chestnuts and embolden your proclivity to loiter beneath the mistletoe. And so, until the new year, I wish you all a very happy festive break. Bye bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.